Hi everyone, this is Shauna from Livable Income Vancouver. Just a quick announcement before we get into the episode today. On March 25th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. we are hosting a Zoom event online. Um, it's a documentary screening and then we also have teamed up with the Vancouver Community College nursing students to discuss uh, COVID-19 and the impacts on young people in our community, as well as an introduction to universal basic income. And this is a free event. If you are interested, the link to register is on our website, Facebook page, Instagram page, and on Eventbrite. This is Livable Income Vancouver, the podcast dedicated to bringing together the voices of the feminist, racial equality, and anti-poverty movements to the campaign for a guaranteed livable income. So thanks for doing this with us, Anne. Hey, you're welcome. I'm just going to grab a pen and paper because it makes me better. Okay, sure. Could you be in an office and not have a pen? <laughs> I have to go in another room. Sorry. No worries. That's okay. We're not live. <laughs> We're not alive. <laughs> okay, I'm back. Okay. Hello. Welcome to episode three of the Livable Income Vancouver podcast. My name is Shauna, and I am one of the members of Livable Income Vancouver, and today I have another member with me, Megan. So thanks for being here, Megan. Yeah, happy to be here. Um, And today our guest is Anne Livingston. So she has been a longtime family friend and has been very involved uh, with um, sort of the economic justice, social justice movements. She is the co-founder of Vandu and is currently the executive project coordinator for the Yukon, or sorry, the BC Yukon Association of Drug War Survivors. So Anne, we are so happy to have you with us today. Thank you. You're welcome. And yeah, we, we want to know how you've been these past couple of months. And how well, um, the project I worked on as a volunteer while I was on welfare for, I think, 10 years because we formed 10 years ago, we, we never got funded. We'd get these tiny little grants. So I'd race mm-hmm. around like a maniac and try and keep the group going. Um, is, uh, can you guys hear those trucks? Should I t- shut the window? Sorry. I can't hear any trucks. Oh, okay, can't good. Hear them. Yeah. good, I'm right on a truck route. Okay. So the, um, uh, <clears throat> that's the work I'm doing. Now we formed a provincial group. We got funding November 1st. So just 29 days before I got my pension and turned 65, I got a job that's properly paid. Wow. (laughs) Congratulations. That's what I'm doing now. And we're forming, um, we're seeding drug user groups in as many locations as uh, we need to, in the sense that we've got a public health emergency for overdose. And um, it's been on for four years and um, nothing seems to be touching it. So we said, you're spending millions of dollars. You need to fund the user groups. So 
they're meant to be um, citizens groups who take action on urgent community issues rather than service providing, you know, you know, we're, we're going to fix you. You guys are broken. It's more for people who use drugs to simply join and think of ways they can, um, with resources or without, because mm -hmm. um, we have resources now, but I'm always trying to tell people to expect um, a new fascist government that will disfund us, but we'll still, you know, you should be prepared to act without, um, you know, as volunteers, much like the work that the reason I know you guys from is doing volunteer work with your mother um, on the poor people's kind of gathering and a lot of welfare advocacy stuff. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed that, like recently, like, have you been in the downtown east side and have you noticed that there have been more like overdoses or mm -hmm. crisis or how have you noticed that it's changed downtown? Yeah, there, we finally got the numbers and there's a significant um, increase in the loss of life because you get overdoses that are non-fatal and you get overdoses that are fatal. And um, it's been a real slog because they uh, um, basically shut everything one day. In the middle of March, every drop-in center, every library, every public toilet, every they name something, you know. So they couldn't get Wi-Fi, you couldn't get toilets, you couldn't go wash, you couldn't go sit down, you couldn't get in out of the rain. And there's a significant number of people who are unsheltered in my neighborhood. So, yeah, I almost wish I had taken more pictures, you know, or just driven around or had a, one of those cameras where people... Yeah. And um, it, because it was a thing to see, and it's it's not really lessened any. At yeah. the Oppenheimer Park, people are just setting up tents all over the sidewalks, but the, which is sort of a victory, but it's not really, of course. So we see them doing, they're spending billions on COVID. Yeah. Not gonna, they don't want to accidentally be kind to poor people or people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so even when they're ordered to do it, they won't do it. So it's been a real slog. Yeah, and I feel like you of all people, you've probably seen the changes over the years, like for as long as I've known you, and I actually don't even know how you first got involved with the downtown east side. Did you want to share a little bit of your story for just like yeah. how you got involved? So I lived in Victoria, and when I was, um, I guess I was 39 or something, I moved to Vancouver, and we moved into the Four Sisters Housing Co-op, and I had three little kids. And... Um, I just started doing volunteer work in the neighborhood. So I was with the downtown East side youth activity society because I was on the downtown East side residents association. Both of those groups are no longer in existence, but that's how I, you know, I just sort of, that's what you do. You know, you home with kids, you just do some volunteer work. So I sort of dragged my kids through it all. But anyway, the, um, that's how we got going. And, um, initially I think the first meeting we ever held, um, I was working with a group of people. We were organizing welfare recipients and we were organizing drug users. And then we had a women's revolutionary discussion group and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. It was three or four meetings a week. And one of them was with the drug users. And that's the one that I, that's just kept going for all these years. So it's been like 30 years, I think now, 26, wow. 26 years is a long time. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. So and that's sort of when like uh, Van Du started? Yeah, so it evolved, you know, community okay. organizing. One of the ways you can tell it's authentic community organizing is things evolve into the next thing and then they morph into the next thing and then they morph. Yeah. So we've done a ton of projects, but one of them was the, that uh, downtown east side drug user discussion group. And then mm -hmm. other people started a group they called the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users and it had a rave people in it. The graves were. You guys have sirens? Something's going on outside of my place right now, actually. 
Oh, and that's in from the airplane. On the highway, I saw uh, <laughs> just in New West, there was two ambulances I went by. It's, just, it's a weird crack in the universe right now. It is. Yeah. It's very strange. Yeah, I'm by the beach, and there's something going on. Uh-oh. Well, there <laughs> there's cops everywhere. So mm -hmm. anyway, the, um, so that group, you know, the model is you get people who um, are affected by the problem together so that they can talk about solving the problem. And they'll have the best ideas and you don't need any funding to do it really i mean you need a little bit so we kind of had a really cheap storefront and we started the first group and then um we happened to get funding on a fluke from the vancouver richmond health board which is now called the vancouver coastal health authority board or whatever it is yes then yeah. mm -hmm. um van maintained that funding all these years but it started off very very low and uh they took our funding away and we fought to get it back and then um, Van Du's just been treading water all this time. And about, you know, the BC Association of People on Methadone came out of Van Du, the Western Aboriginal Harm Reduction Society, which is a group of people who use drugs who are Indigenous or Aboriginal, um, and the um, Canadian Association of People who use drugs, we've formed through Van Du members networking across the country. Yeah. And then this group I'm with now, of course, as well. But I was, um, and Pivot Legal Society, me and um, John Richardson just, really organized to get uh, and it's still going strong um to work on behalf of marginalized people so it's it's uh, there's drug user groups and then there's drug user groups with a lawyer mm -hmm. so you okay. better watch out <laughs> it makes a huge difference to have you know legal help or whatever so have you seen any crossover with the groups that you volunteer with and work with between what you're doing and the guaranteed livable income movement. Is there lots, like I know obviously you're aware of the movement and you're a supporter of the GLI, um, but is there a lot of awareness within the community that you're in? I find not. I find that um, we have significant key people in the anti-poverty movement who talk shit about UBI and they, they seem mm -hmm. very, very much against it. And I always go, hmm, I bet they've never been on welfare. <laughs> nothing will teach you the benefits of UBI unless you've been through one of those like welfare is at its very best we were complaining about it mm -hmm. and you can look to models like I remember way back when I was organizing with Cindy Barker your mother mm -hmm. um, we found out that if you were on welfare in um, some European countries you got two weeks off and you could go to a camp where they babysat your children and you got to commune with nature and sleep in a little cottage. <laughs> okay, that sounds so, fun. I've never <laughs> heard of such a thing. Most of the modeling for welfare has been copied from the US from what we did have and the best we ever had was still pretty dreadful. But in the olden days, people could certainly um, uh, be on welfare and rent a house that had a front yard and a backyard and a garage mm. and a fence, you know, that's mm -hmm. what it was like in the 60s. And they were run down or, you know, we could make lots of complaints. But on the other hand, now you are just unable to do anything. If you can get a one bedroom, like my welfare rate, which I finally got off welfare um, in November, um, just as, you know, on my birthday and, uh, just in 2019, so it's very recent. Um, the shelter allowance for myself and one child was $580 a month, and that's supposed to cover your heat, your light, and your rent. You can't even get a room for 580. And if you live with your kid in a room with you, you know, you would be frowned upon because your child's male, or you know what I mean, all this mm -hmm. stuff. 
there's, there's a lot of industries that spring from making welfare so miserable. And certainly foster care is one of them and juvenile um, hall kind of stuff. Um, the whole justice system from children is incredibly predictable. And um, all of those uh, feed into uh, psychiatric, the emergency psych unit at St. Paul's has never met a child that wasn't a foster child. So while I'm not saying never met one, but it's like three mm -hmm. 97% are because they, they just abandoned yeah. and they run away and the, the whole system, even the old foster care system where 16 year olds or 15 year olds could live in a group in an apartment and go to a, a public school together and have a social worker visit them twice a week. That's what it was like when I was a kid. People think, you know, I just think of, are you dreaming him? It was like a, you know, nice kind of, they wanted them to mm -hmm. see and, and now what you do with, um, I think, um, wording of the, um, Alexander, I can't think of her first name. Anyway, she wrote uh, The New Jim Crow, is that this underclass and people who were raised on welfare um, have, are so futureless that they're um, uh, likely to then be on welfare themselves. And it's, or not just that, criminal justice and welfare and foster care and juvie and Mm -hmm. so, um, um, she calls it an underclass that never can escape from mm -hmm. itself in the sense that you just have intergenerational poverty that leads mm -hmm. to more intergenerational poverty and on it goes. Mm -hmm. So they've, they've been more experienced in the States with it. But I think in its heyday, when we had the very best social system in Canada, which ended probably in the 60s, but it took a long time for it to die because they didn't want it ended abruptly. They wanted to kill it with a million little cuts, you know? Mm -hmm. And they did. Um, um, it was a very source of pride that children who grew up on welfare had teeth and they had, you know, they could go to university on scholarships and those kind of things. These are like fantasy now, in, in my uh, observation anyway. Mm -hmm. So I mystery shopped the welfare system a number of times. I was on it in the 70s. I took a few checks in the 70s um, when my EI ran out and I was single and didn't have children. Then I think I was on it when 1982 was a huge recession or depression or something. And I, no one ever talks about it. They always talk about 08. I'm going, what about 82? Anyway, or 81, 82. Um, and there was a massive unemployment. I was on for uh, a couple of years then. And then I was on in the 90s. And then again uh, with Joseph. This is the last mm -hmm. 10 years with Joseph in Vancouver. So um, mm -hmm. most of the time I've been a mother. And... The interesting thing about welfare is it's supposed to be, it's almost biblical. It's a kind of moral code of Christianity that you look after the widows and orphans. And I think it, it um, comes from the idea that if uh, a soldier was killed, the society was obligated to look after his wife and child. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there was kind of a, it wasn't considered deviant. And then I remember when it became deviant. If you were a welfare mother, you were despised. I always wanted to do a reverse pride project where I could get a t-shirt that said welfare queen, you know, this. <laughs> but the welfare system in the States was destroyed um, in the Clinton years, which was quite a long time ago. And he's considered, you know, really liberal and everything. It's not, it's, it was terrible destruction. Mm -hmm. And then if you look carefully, the destruction of the Canadian system was just cut and pasted from the US system. So if you're single and you're considered employable, even if you're a single mother, and like this happened to me, if you're a single mother 
and you're obligated to look for work because you're not disabled and you're not considered a person with multiple barriers. Um, if you can't prove that you're looking for work, which means that you showed up at certain appointments and impressed somebody who didn't rat you out. In my case, I didn't show up at things. I just said, I'm not going anymore. Mm -hmm. Find me a job, let me know, because I'm really busy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so they did, they were obligated to report me. I was awful because the poor worker, I think she felt bad. But anyway, then yeah. I get the report and they call you and they say, um, you will not be receiving your next check. That's what they say. And you go, but I have a child. And they go, perhaps you didn't understand me, Ms. Livingston. You will not be receiving your next check. And you go, really? You cut me off with a kid? And they go, you know, so once there's a dispute, and this is what I'm always encouraging people to be, you know, fight back as much as you can, because I keep thinking it will set precedent. And I'm mm. not sure if it does or not. I probably, yeah. but um, so I fought about that. And I had to, I made this whole case. I felt like I was writing a you know, a paper for some university course. And um, the research shows that if you're volunteering, uh, you're very much more likely to get actual employment. And yeah. It's true. Now I have a job. <laughs> so, yeah. But um, I had to present to, I asked for a reconsideration. It's incredibly burdensome compared to the old days. So if you're not, if you have literacy problems, you're slump. Yeah. And it leads to child apprehensions because they can cut you off with the child. They do not care. It used to be very careful how we would do our welfare appeals in the 90s. And we would say that if it's going to show harm to the child, you would win your case. Yeah. So you could sometimes even get things like gas for your car, extra money for gas for your car. Yeah. You had to take your child and you lived in a rural place and there was no transit. So, um, you know, we were very familiar with all these things and then it completely disappeared. It was, um, there's no discussion. Uh, the other thing, it was very localized. If you went to your local welfare office, the supervisor there could make a decision about your case and you would make your case to her. She would do your reconsideration. And then they provincialized it. So while I did all of this, I was always very curious and a bit fearless sometimes. I mean, I got a little, I got a little scared. Yeah. Um, and I'd say, uh, well, where are you? And they'd be in Prince George or they'd be uh, in Nanaimo, like anywhere. So they created virtual departments and they have a reconsideration department. I said, really? A reconsideration department? You're kidding. Anyway, it's nuts. So you got five days to get it in. It has to be filled out right. <clears throat> if you miss the deadline, I don't know what you're supposed to do, but it's not good. And then they take weeks to get back to you to tell you no. I don't know if they ever say yes on a reconsideration. I've never heard. Yeah. And then you have to file an appeal. And an appeal is like, it's a quasi-judicial kind of situation. And it takes... Uh, they tell you you can get an advocate. So I go to the advocates and they said, it's written right into welfare law right now that you can't dispute anything that has to do with looking for work. Well, that's what I was disputing. They said I wasn't looking for work. I yeah. said, hearing's looking for work. And in fact, it's more effective than me phoning the yellow pages asking people for jobs, right? So and that's why I was refusing to do it. But the, um, uh, when you're in that process, I, I asked for an advocate and the advocate said, your case has no merit and we won't help you. And that's the law foundation. So someone's telling the advocates not to help welfare recipients on these kinds of rigid rules. And mm -hmm. I always like to call them back after because I did win my case. And I say, I want yeah. to don't tell people that. You, you can win. You know what I mean? So, and of course, yeah. they don't like that. They think I'm being a snooty bitch, which I, you know, it is a bit weird to be abandoned by an entire advocacy system that's set up because 
you're supposed to be screwed up when you're on welfare. You're supposed to, if you had poor literacy signals, who would be surprised? You know what I mean? Poor mm -hmm. people who are at a huge disadvantage and then they make the system only work for people who have tremendous advantage, you know, literacy, uh, internet, a computer, a phone. That's the only reason I got through any of that was because I had all that going for me. And plus my uppity attitude. Yeah. So, yeah, it doesn't sound very efficient or user-friendly or people-friendly or mother-friendly. It damages the very people that there's a kind of, uh, in the ether of Canada, we have healthcare. And the other one is we have a social safety net and you talk to anyone and they'll tell you this and then you're stuck trying to tell them that we used to have a little bit more of a social safety net but it's mm -hmm. gone and people my age especially are just resistant you must have done something oh that can't be true and you go no it's really true and I'm sorry to have to tell you this and here's a hanky so you can cry but I'm telling you and they just don't you can't it's really difficult to get and i think that they know that no one believes you because mm -hmm. very little action on it. we get an ndp government in shane simpson grew up on welfare in um the projects down the road from me and he has no fucking idea what it's like now it's mm -hmm. cool. it's a punitive um disabling system, thing that's meant to either have you um go crazy like become ill because you're you know, of all the other, not just the stress, but then you have a poor diet and everything else, but mostly psychologically. And then your children will be extremely disadvantaged and labeled. It's so predictable. And then, of course, the foster care sitting system sitting there just waiting for you to get rid of your kids. I, I tried to bring this to Indigenous things because we've got this hugely disproportionate number of Indigenous kids in care. Everyone complains about it. They write reports about it. They whine about it. They go on and on and on. And I, I try to contact them. I said, you need to be clear why it's happening. The reason it's happening is that they've changed the law. It used to be that they could not cut you off welfare, like cut off, two zero, no income, if you have children. Now, and the way it works, just to be clear, they cut you to zero because you're disputing something with them. And then I look at them and I go, but I need to pay my rent in two days. How do I do that? And they go, Oh, you can apply for a supplement. And they'll call it this. They've got reams. They've got rooms full of paper that all these bureaucrats have laid out. Um, so they've got, I don't know how many rules. Like, you know what I mean? They've made more and more and more and more paperwork where you used to just go to your supervisor in your local office and say, I'm doing 40 hours of volunteering. Tell my worker not to cut me off um, because this is good work. It's, you know what I mean? It's, it's me for fuck's sakes. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. Quote my, um, when I did see her one day, I happened to see her and I said, you're a supervisor. And she said, yeah. And I said, so can you get me my welfare check back? And she goes, you're practically a legend in the neighborhood, but no, <laughs> I no they don't, they don't care what you're doing or what, you know what I mean? There's no, um, what do you call it? Discretion. There's no discretion. Yeah. Workers. And you see this, they've constructed these programs into the, um, computers and I'll guarantee you if you can get in far enough you'd find out that they bought these programs from the US and if the worker tries to give you something generously add it to your check the whole computer freezes she can't get to the next window and she'll wow. have someone over and then they'll have to see what she did wrong and it's usually something that she's giving me that she shouldn't be giving me and then because I watched her do this I was going look don't let's not be too nice here. She, she was my age and she was older and I could tell what she was. I could tell she knew who I was and she was trying to be nice. Right. And I was going, <clears throat> let's just get this to work. You know, I was like, <laughs> mm -hmm. 
But that's, um, that's a fundamental principle of justice, that if you have a dispute with any government body, they can't give you the punishment for the dispute. So if I had a lost my welfare um, appeal, I would be cut off, period, end of story. And I started laughing one day, because you get these, you know, I call the, you call this 800 number and someone in BC somewhere answers it. And then if you get into one of these disputes, you have to deal with the reconciliation branch or you have to deal with the um, uh, appeal branch or something. And when she just seemed a little bit nicer. So I said, I started laughing because I said, well, what if I lose and I get cut off welfare? What am I supposed to do? Because mm -hmm. by this time you've been given this supplement for three months and now you owe them $3,000 because I was getting approximately $1,000 a month. Welfare for a single employable mother was $1,000. $45 and that's 580 for your rent and whatever the rest is for your support and uh, they don't count your um, child tax credit from the federal government as income which is good um, mm -hmm. and it's about 450 now um, per child so um, anyway um, <laughs> the, um, I said well, what do I do and she said well you'd have to reapply for welfare and I said but how would I pay back this debt and she said, oh, they take it off $20 at a time or something. So it's, it's actually all sort of a false, um, but it's meant to psychologically terrorize you. And if I wasn't so fucking uppity and pushy, say I'm more oppressed and I really believe yeah. it, and I react emotionally, I'm going to lose my kid. That's the first thing that's going to happen to you when you're cut off welfare. You're going to lose your kid because you don't pay your rent. And you know how I paid my rent? I paid huh. my rent because I'm such a conservative weirdo that I had my full child tax credit in my bank and I hadn't cashed it yet. And my rent was $518 because I'm in supplemented housing because it's supplemented, was still supplemented. Co-ops are running out of money now, so that's not mm -hmm. gonna last much longer. But there was an agreement between anyone on welfare and uh, the co-op system was yeah. that they would give you, uh, they would charge you for your housing charges, they call it, um, the amount that you could afford on welfare. And then it's one third as you get a job and stuff. So I'm at a complete advantage. I would not have even been able to, um, uh, I would not even have been able to um, do anything if I hadn't, like if, if I, I wouldn't be an activist if I didn't. Yeah. yeah, we grew up with subsidized housing too. And I feel like that was the one thing that saved us, like mm -hmm. our family to have any sort of normalcy like growing up in that complex that like mm -hmm. gave that flexibility. Like I have no idea like what mom would have done if we didn't find that. Complex. Well, I do remember her before you had that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I, I wasn't as poor as her, but we take over grocery bags to her. You know what yeah. I mean? It's amazing how, um, how practical and how little you can do for someone and how much of a difference it makes. They don't have to go to a food bank and stand in a lineup with, tiny babies in their arms mm -hmm. the food banks do weird things. I, uh, I go to quest where you sort of purchase the food. It's really odd, but the food banks will check your ID. Oh, okay. It's like rich people are going to go and stand in a lineup. And <laughs> food bank. And they're going to make sure they weed you out. I was just like, for heaven's sakes, if you're that mental, they got another problem. It's exactly. Like, why would they do that? So yeah, it's, um, but the thing about UBI is that it's so liberating and it's so hard to grasp. And the great thing about right now is that these checks are coming to people and if it clicks over in their little brains, the, I think the bigger problem with UBI is always that you need to tell people 
that we are supplementing billionaires all the fucking time. Mm -hmm. And, um, the, you know, <laughs> someone kept saying, COVID's going to kill 3,000 people or something. And then they said, I've chosen 3,000 we could kill. And then we'll <laughs> million dollars <laughs> world poverty i was like oh my god because that's how much if you take the i don't know how many billionaires there are now but there's a lot mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. more all the time but they also hold uh tremendous more money each one of them like i don't know bill gates and um i don't know what three of them just made 248 million dollars in the last six weeks of covid billion with a b yeah. and people don't know what a billion is that's my other great friend yeah. When I was trying to figure out how many grains of rice would that be, <laughs> I did one on um, TikTok and I can't figure out how to find it. But he took, he counted rice grains and he said each one of these is worth 100,000 or something. I don't know, 10,000. I don't know. Okay. It up with mountains of rice that um, the guy from Amazon owns and then what the rest of us all share, you know. Yeah. Because you want to give ki little kids, especially, you want to get them to get this visual because the kids, yeah. people scale, they can't understand money. Yeah. They're big numbers. They're big, big numbers. Yeah. Well, when I think about all the employees that are paid who work in this, like, government system that you just described, like all the people you've dealt with over the years, it seems it'd be a lot more simple just to give people a UBI it's always, you know, one of the things that blew my mind was that there's this sort of Peruvian radical economist. And instead of, everyone has this image of sort of anything where you're nice to humans that are less than or, you know, or poor or something, you end up with this huge, rigid communist bureaucracy hell, you know, like this, some sort of Stalinist Russia. Mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. He's got a whole premise that it's really, I'm finding it really hard to find his stuff, but he puts it the other way. And it's a lot more fitting with UBI. All the studies of UBI show what do people do? Well, women who want to stay home with their kids do that. People who want to go to university or any kind of trade school, they do that. But everybody else just keeps working. If, mm. if, if having a lot of money or free money makes you not work, why the hell does Bill Gates keep getting up and going to work? I wish he'd fucking stay home. You know, like, <laughs> stop. You well, I feel like it's because people say, well, because rich people have the work ethic, so they'll keep working. But if you're poor, you'll just be lazy and you'll just do nothing if you get the money. That's what well, I've heard. It's really worth watching um, that guy who wrote the book, book called Bullshit Jobs. It's such a good book. It's, mm -hmm. I mean, and I don't read books anymore. I watch, um, watch hour-long videos of lectures given by the author at a oh, okay. university. And he's some professor and he's in, they chased him out of the U.S., I can tell you that. But it's so interesting because he did this article and he said, um, bullshit jobs evidently are really well paid, but you don't do anything. And um, he, some, some magazine called up and said, you can write about anything. He said, anything? So he wrote this article. <laughs> he said it was translated into 30 languages within a month and all these people were mad at him and upset. And, but he said, you know, he got more letters from people who said how heartbreaking it was that they had a bullshit job. They were confessing. Yeah. Said, oh, heartbreaking. I do nothing. I, because if you didn't, for instance, if you write, say, welfare policy, you have to carefully, like this happened in Victoria. I finally, I had a disabled kid and then two little kids. And we're in Victoria. We're on welfare. And um, I could get, uh, I, could, I could get the littler kids daycare 
because of the disability of the older kid. And you had to fight for this. And I finally got it. And um, the kids hated the daycare. And, and the other thing was that if, if you figured it out, they would, the daycare would cost $350 a month or something, and they would only give you $290 or $300. So you had $50 out of your food budget. So you could put your kids in daycare. And I was going, does someone sit in a room, phone around and make sure they find out that daycare actually costs that much and then offer you that much. So you oh have to pay your food money. And then you know what they tell you? Like you're supposed to be still grateful because you're getting free daycare. And I said, I'm not grateful. What are we supposed to eat? <laughs> like it's stupid. Like it's yeah. as if somehow, you know, I don't know. It, it, I think that um, it's not that more people need to be on welfare. Mm-hmm. You know, to have, have experienced it, but there's some way that this people can't be nice to people. Mm-hmm. They certainly do it with drug users, and they certainly do it with poor people. They have to have that, you know, hand out a little hatred with that check. Yeah, it almost feels like the system we have right now is set up to punish poor people rather than help solve the problem. Like, and there's so much focus and bureaucracy and money put into just making sure that it's difficult and it's a punishment for them for being poor. God, is any study, and there's thousands of studies, I can't find them anymore. I, I started writing to these professors of social work. I'd just see them on Facebook and I'd realize that was their job and they just all tell me, you know, they just brushed me away. They don't seem to know what I'm talking about. If you're super kind to people on welfare and you give them lots of money, as much money as you can possibly give them, all the studies show they'll get off welfare much, much faster than when you grind them down. Mm -hmm. By the time you go to get on welfare, get off welfare and get a job, they won't cover your glasses. They won't cover your teeth. So now you can't see your fucking teeth are rotting. You don't have any decent clothes. Your health is compromised. Mm -hmm. You live in some shithole and you don't have the, you know, the means to kind of go forward with some stuff and create a little enthusiasm about what it would be great to have me as an employee. (laughs) smile or have to read anything you know like it just it's absurd it's beyond comprehension so it that the uh what is her name something alexander anyway that whole thing about an underclass is that that's done on purpose because an underclass gives if you look at the economy of how it works they need you to fill up the jails they need you to you know what i mean and it's such a weird accusation to give good decent human beings who basically just want to have a union job at one point, I figured what was going to happen in the States, and it probably has, is they've got a whole bunch of the really, I don't know, poor people or working class poor or whatever. Half of them are in jail, and the other half has a job guarding the guys in jail. Like, these are not yeah. know, attractive jobs, I'm just saying. But it's a union job. You know what I mean? Like, it's mm-hmm. so bizarre. And it takes a, a real... Um, for people to see themselves as unified and having something in common is um, very difficult, I find. I, you know, if they're left to their own, they'll do it. But if anyone interferes in any way, it's extremely easy to manipulate people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I, was, I was just reading um, the congressional Republicans in the States. The original proposal for the coronavirus stimulus package would have given poor Americans half of the financial assistance that the middle-class families received. 
It's like, it is so set up to keep poor people poor. Well, they don't want to accidentally be nice to the poor. And what we there's a similar thing going on here. They changed the prescribing rules for physicians and they're supposed to give drug users any drug, uh, stimulants for the first time, uh, ever. And we've been fighting this for 20 years. Um, and now the doctors won't obey the guidelines, but you know, when they, before when we tried to get them to be more lenient with the guidelines because someone needed to travel for a few days and they needed to get more drugs to take with them so they didn't go into withdrawal on the trip. And the trip was to, I know, discuss uh, um, opiates and, or methadone or whatever in Ottawa with Health Canada. I mean, this is a totally honorable thing to do. Uh-huh. They still wouldn't give it to them because they said, oh, I have to obey the guidelines. Now they go, you know what the doctors say now? These are just guidelines. <laughs> too bad they weren't before but it's it's been a slog and we're, we're always trying to think of a legal case there's been a legal case and it would appear in canada now it's uh, nova scotia has the most um well-organized welfare kind of advocate people that um something is unjust as cutting someone off welfare and you'll find this universally this is true that's why it made me chuckle that i really caught my eye because i was going through it at myself um a family there was cut off welfare because the father had not shown up at a, an appointment which would be reassurance that he was it's work fair you're forced to look mm-hmm. for work or you will not get a check and that used to be against the law in canada i think it is still against the law but you can't get it into court so there was a professor there who did it and he did it pro bono and um, the, the judge ordered the Nova Scotia government to rewrite the welfare law because you cannot make a woman and three children homeless because a man in their family didn't show up at an appointment. And that's what happened to them. They lost their housing because you can't pay your rent. That's the big problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and like I said, the indigenous stuff is that way. And um, because indigenous people are disadvantaged and end up on welfare more, if we have very bad welfare laws, you're going to see a lot of damage for, for, to wealth to indigenous people. It, and mm-hmm. the same thing with um, mandatory minimums and all these things. We've had a huge deluge of uh, uh, very, uh, I always just, we're just copying whatever failed in the U.S. We'll bring that in. Um, trying to jail a lot of Canadians. They've increased the jail population in Canada massively and mm-hmm. built tons more jails. And if you look, they're tremendously um, populated by Indigenous people. So it's the same thing, you know, when they make really bad drug laws, more Indigenous people are going to get charged with them. But it's so hard to get the challenge. It's a charter challenge that you'd have to do. And um, the problem with trying to do legal cases on behalf of poor people, it's so hard to keep them alive. And, you know, where do, what are you going to do? You just basically have to put them on your couch and then become this, you know, monster lawyer that's doing the case. And you got to keep the person alive because it's their case. And the case is going to take five years more. And if the government keeps appealing it all the way, it's going to take eight years. And mm-hmm. the government will spend millions and millions of dollars um, just trying not to give a few thousand dollars to people. It's um, the Cindy Blackstock cases like that. She's trying to get equity for Aboriginal kids on reserve. And um, the government, this and this Trudeau government, while well, he can actually get tears coming down his face, because he's, <laughs> he's spending millions, his same government, fighting her in court because she won a human rights complaint and they're trying to constantly reverse it and they haven't been able to. Oh, backwards. I know. Well, it's just stupid. I mean, and this is where you're not, I don't know. It's, it's so depressing. It's hard to know what to do, but I do love the opportunities and UBI. I think um, the only comparable thing that I I can tell people my age about is I met 
we met her in homeschooling. I don't, I don't know. And um, I, I soon realized, I don't know, we're Cadbury Bay. I have no idea how we knew them and we were socializing. And it became, she told me that her husband wouldn't give her any money at all, ever. And he had a very good income and they lived in a nice house. So the only cash that ever came to her was the child tax credit money. And that's because they gave it to rich families and poor families. That's what universal means. Mm -hmm. And universal payments have a tremendously good quality to them because if you're too rich to receive it, they claw it back. And they probably clawed it back from her family too. But at least she got her hands on it. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't give her any money. So I was like, holy shit. I mean, I just, I thought, how, how am I going to feel sorry for her? She's so rich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did. I, I got the trap she was in. You know, she didn't yeah. go on about it, but she just basically told me. Yeah. And I remember, I was just shocked. And I thought, what? Well, thank God for that. At least she yeah. gets money so she can have that, you know, bit of, because um, women disappear in that. Because that's the other thing. It's extremely damaging to women, mm-hmm. and particularly women raising children. Mm-hmm. Is without having a UBI, you either are a woman who stashes your kid in some daycare that's costing more than the money you can make just out of pride that you're not on welfare and you meet people like this and they're, you know, it's just a, it's a psychological, like it's so hard to educate them and say, no, no, you're entitled to this. And that's this for many, many years, my parents were NDP people and they went to hundreds of meetings, thousands of meetings. And, um, my mother would go to women's meetings, you know, for women being able to choose reproductive rights and get access to birth control and abortion and that stuff that went on forever. But there was other women's issues there too, like daycare and um, just women being able to be paid properly or not be beaten up by their husbands. It used to be that you couldn't charge your husband if he beat you up. Like that was legal. Like uh, people don't know where we've come from, I don't think. And we're seeing a lot of it reversed without it um, without anyone being aware, you know, EI's basically been gutted. It's our fucking money. I mean, you really do put it in. I thought, start our own private one. You know, yeah. People's EI. Are you paying in? I'm paying in. You know, it's such <laughs> a great program because it also protected women. When that, that Gomeshi guy got into trouble and people were going, well, why did those women not quit? Well, because, you know, in the day, I thought... I wonder if I was ever in that position. And I thought, I bet I was some grabby asshole that's trying to make you have sex with him. Or you know what I mean? Something mm-hmm. like that. You just quit. And you told all your friends what kind of asshole he was. Because you went on EI. You didn't have to. Now they do this big thing. Did you quit your job? And you go, yeah, I did. The guy was a grabby asshole. Like, you know, you can't. You, you have this. They've made EI kind of like welfare. It's all dependent. You have income. Like, it's some new welfare mm-hmm. program. But it isn't. It's actually cash money from money you earned put into a fund and the government mm-hmm. stealing it i remember it got to the surplus of eight billion was in the ei account because they made it so no one could get ei they made put all these restrictions on it and then mm-hmm. they put it into general revenue they basically stole our money and they never gave it back so but it, most people just don't have like i think we have to have who knows if it comes from local organizing and people run their own little things and they do their own little projects and then they start to get bigger and bigger and bigger thinking in terms of systems. I see how when you pool money that it can become money, you know, like it, it can become a lot really quickly. Mm-hmm. Like you start figuring it out and um, figuring out what's the best um, research showing us, how it's the best way to raise children. What's the best 
citizens we can make, what's the best health we can produce. Because they all want to spend the money on healthcare downstream for sure, because it's, it's sucking up more than half of every dollar you pay in taxes is going into the healthcare system. And it's all too late. It, wow, you live outside with no housing and gee, you get sick. What a surprise. I mean, any two-year-old mm -hmm. could tell you that that's not going to work out well. And yet they love it. You know, the doctors are billing and billing and billing. Mm -hmm. The doctors make massive, massive wages. And um, they've built up this kind of horrible healthcare system. And they've made it now. So if you're on welfare and you're going to get some kind of test at the hospital, there was a catheter involved. And um, they said the catheter costs $120. Do you have a credit card? I said, I'm on welfare. Isn't it covered by my welfare? And she said, no, you'll have to apply to get the 120 to us for that catheter. If you're denied it, then you won't get it. Well, and if you're denied it, you can appeal it. You can ask for a reconsideration and an appeal. And you go to a tribunal to get a fucking catheter for 120 bucks for some test that supposedly you actually need as a medical need. And we still think we have free healthcare in Canada. And you can imagine how many volumes of binders that somebody's filled up with, well, she can have it if it's this and that. Like David, let's take David, for example, my son with a disability. We moved from one apartment to another apartment. And um, he's a hemi, so he can only move his right arm. He can't really, his left arm's not so useful. So uh, we move in and it's a disabled suite. His other suite wasn't a disabled suite. So you're pretty smart to move to a disabled suite if you're disabled, that's a good idea. So uh, when we get into the new disabled suite, the bars aren't in the right spots for him. So I say, well, we've got to get these bars. They said, oh, you'll have to apply. So you, so you had to make an application that wasn't just covered because he's disabled and on welfare and on disability too. So we had to appeal the decision for the bars because they said, your old apartment, you had bars put in, I'm going, good thing. And um, they said, but you can only get bars every five years. Like we're, we're stealing bars out of buildings and selling them on the black market. I can't even imagine the accusation they're trying to make to you. It's just bizarre. I was like, yeah, through, there's a, like, I don't know, volumes of paperwork. And you have to come to the part about bars in bathrooms. They actually have a section. And then I had to quote it to them and do the appeal and no advocate would help me with that either. So wow. the Beefy Coalition of People with Disabilities would not help me. You'll never win. I was like, and then when I won all five of them, you can't get help moving. You can't, like they make, I'm telling you, they just make it into this, this, this sort of lifetime work of going through. Yeah of hoops to jump through after hoop after hoop and volumes and volumes of details of what's eligible what's not eligible and i know it's all copied from the us i just know it and it gives i don't know how many bureaucrats you know at my church i found out women there my kids were playing with their kids and i found out she wrote welfare policy oh <laughs> how am i going to talk to her <laughs> I just thought I would lose my shit. I was just shocked. I thought, so you sit in that room and figure out how we can give people a daycare allowance that doesn't quite cover the daycare and we can make them appeal for bars on the bathroom. So we have, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. as if you would ask for bars on your bathroom when you don't need them. Yeah, like, just for fun. Yeah, because it's so much fun. So all this like paperwork to navigate and then they still 
check up on you and make sure you're going to like job interviews are there like other restrictions that people on welfare have about how they spend their welfare money no but um you don't okay. ever dare like in the old days if you ran out of money early you would just say i need a in fact every few months you have a five-week month and how you could possibly get by on four weeks with that money is beyond me but then now you got to get by on five weeks so we did a little campaign and we had all the welfare recipients all go in and ask for um, um, extra money on a five-week month. We were going to make it such a campaign they'd finally mm -hmm. just increase the checks, which they we lost. And we you just got to. It's hard to organize welfare people. You got to get a place to do it. You got to keep mm -hmm. the enthusiasm up anyway. So, um, but they changed the rules, and you can't get them um, when you're on the phone. This is how crazy it is. You're on the phone with the 800 number now, and you have to say that it was an unforeseen um, uh, unforeseen cost has arisen something you couldn't predict. So I said, I wanted shoes for my kid. And she said, and I said, well, he's outgrown them. And she said, you can't say that. So she's coaching me what to say to her on the phone. You feel like you're okay. in some kind of really dystopian um, play. And so um, it was unforeseen that a child's feet would grow. And so I'm asking, you know, I just never thought of that. And uh, this is, you know what I mean? It's just beyond idiocy. And, and I, it, the greatest, I don't know. I mean, I started to get, it, it's, none of it's very satisfying. That's the problem. When you win one of these things, it doesn't set precedent. So, so the thing that I'm concerned about is here's the, here's the line, the John Clark line. And I swear, I'm, I don't know if I could even bear to get in an argument. He lives in Toronto, so thank God. But they always, here's the line that they say. You'll lose services. You'll lose programs. That's why they don't want to do universal basic income because people will lose stuff they're getting now. And I always go, can you name something that we will lose? Anything. Mm -hmm. Name it. Yeah. Uh, your, your meager underpaid welfare that's got all these strings tied to it. Um, would it be um, these healthcare programs that don't cover you anyway? Would it be... Because what they don't take into a consideration is their sense of humiliation and the number of hours and hours and hours you spend on this. And the whole way through it is everyone's handing out a little bit of hatred. Not always. I mean, there's some, okay. um, you get, you get the code down, you know, you get the wink, wink, you know, you can tell, mm -hmm. but the, for the most part, they're turning out. And the other thing is why are academics so stupid? How could they mm -hmm. find people who have gone to study and studied any kind of social work and not know that the, most cash you give to people and the least restrictions you put on it and the, the more leniency you have towards those persons, the more likely they are to be on welfare for a shorter period of time and more productive later in their lives or whatever. It's complete study. Well, it just, it seems like everyone's so afraid to challenge what the norm is and just, we've always done it this way and this is just how it's supposed to be. Like when people say, well, a UBI isn't perfect and it's like by saying a ubi isn't perfect are you suggesting the system we have now is perfect <laughs> they just, they just have far it from it want to hand out the ubi with a little hatred and they <laughs> yeah. to do that because if it is proper ubi it's just taxed straight back off just give it to everyone i don't care send mm -hmm. a fucking check to sophie trudeau i don't give a fuck I'm sure that the, the, when we have child tax credits, that's how it was done. It's universal. It's mm -hmm. a great thing about universal programs. There's no stigma. Everyone gets the fucking check. If you don't need it, don't use it. If you want to put it in an account and 
and give it to your kid when they're 21, go ahead and do it. But it's going to get taxed back off your family if your income's too high. Just do it that way. Yeah. And, and people go, well, we couldn't do that. It has to be income, whatever. And then the horror is when they do do something income tested, it never works. Like we had these income tested program. No. Oh, no, it wasn't income tested. And it was for kids with disabilities. And it, they charged $100 a week, no matter how rich or poor you were. And I said, well, $100 a week, you might as well make it 1000 I can't afford $100 a week. Mm-hmm. You're on welfare, $100 yeah. a week. Are you kidding me? So um, I remember saying, well, then why don't you do it income tested? Why don't the rich people pay more? They can afford more than $100 a week. I can't afford, I can, you know how much I can afford? Zero. So it was kind of like, you're fucking the people at the bottom because $100 a week. And they're thinking, because they're, 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 well, I don't know. Sometimes it's easy to think that it's a conspiracy, but it isn't. It's just raw stupidity. And so I believe that. It not be stepped over. But on the other hand, is why do we have people making policy who don't have an understanding of uh, the very best kind of best practice and best science. We get this all the time with drugs too. They're constantly paying for drug mm-hmm. programs that have no merit. You know, if you give a heroin addict heroin in Switzerland and they just come and get their heroin without any hatred and you give, you go, hey, I got any housing, you help me. You know, you have someone there full time handing them their heroin going, hey, so how you doing today? <laughs> did, you, did you look at that place? Should I take you over and look? You know, you're, you're getting them on their feet as it mm-hmm. were. And because um, there's lots of obstacles to having to, to run around and get drugs all day, right? So anyway, um, they have a higher rate of people quitting drugs completely, completely. And they, that means abstinence, and they don't drink or anything. Um, they have more people on the heroin program stopping drugs completely if they give them about five years to do it than they do any of the abstinence programs that we run. You know, go there for 28 days, and when you get out, you're clean, you're straight, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And then anything you do after that, like using again, is a failure, right? So Mm -hmm. then people become uh, traumatized, and they don't want to keep trying because they've got, you know, and everyone can predict. If you look at it long enough, you go, well, that's worse practice. You should never tell people you got 28 days to get straight. What you should do is sidle up to them and going, hey, I hear you're addicted to heroin. How about I just give you heroin every day? And like, maybe we can like talk about getting your kids back and getting a place. And like, you know what I mean? Hey, a life. What do you think? And if people who don't ever quit heroin, they can't get all the way off. No one can even tell they're a fucking on it. That's why they have to test their pee. You just can't tell. So they can live their lives normally. And we don't go around going, well, are you on antidepressants? Are you on barbiturates? Are like, you know, benzos? Mm-hmm. Or like, I don't know. Everyone seems to be on something. But, um, you know, how many ibuprofen do you take a day? Like, there's so many horrible toxic drugs out there that are causing huge problems mm-hmm. for people. And no one ever seems to care, except, you know, they've got this criminalization thing going on. So it's a little bit, I think uh, welfare is a bit like that too. You know, you just don't do it that way. Like, why would you be cruel to somebody? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, whether this is, like I always try and think of it as next steps or how can we win this? And um, this has been a big opportunity with a lot of people getting these checks. And you notice right away, the conservative moron, he says, you won't go back to work now. I thought, well, you know, $2,000 was more money than they made. Like, I think COVID and the spread of this disease and the big, you know, outbreaks and the places where you'll see the outbreaks has mm-hmm. to do with labor laws. 
if they can't take stay mm-hmm. home when they're sick, they go to work sick. Yeah. Like, well, if it wasn't for um, old people's homes at the beginning, we wouldn't have had any deaths. And if there wasn't for then, um, what came next? Prisons. And um, you can bet the guards brought that in. And uh, what's the other one? Slaughterhouses. It's just horrifying. I think. Whoa. What else do you test positive from if you work in one of those places? Yeah. Those are some very, very difficult places to work, I believe. I don't know a lot about them, but mm-hmm. I don't know. The 60, someone finally admitted that agriculture brings in 50,000 temporary my, temporary workers every year. I saw, holy shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's all still about unionizing or getting people to, to be part of their communities, I think. And, yeah. and um, justice for one is justice for all that kind of thing we can't yeah. we can't get anywhere if we're constantly undermined and i don't know the media is terrible on this shit so i'm so glad you guys are doing something mm-hmm. I don't, you know what in terms of um uh yeah it's, it's hard to imagine i think education's the first thing though and just constantly mm-hmm. saying we're entitled to this they're yeah. giving Billions of dollars to big business right now, and the very little of it's going down into anything we would consider UBI. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, people. There's more discussion than ever. I love uh, Andrew Yang. I just yes, yeah. like oh, he's so cute. We <laughs> love him. <laughs> I want to bring him to Vancouver. His wife um, uh, was sexually assaulted by an obstetrician. I don't know if you Google it, you'll see the story. She took a long time to come out. Wow. And, um, but she was sexually assaulted by an obstetrician and um, she felt really upset. She, you know, whatever. It's, let her tell the story. It's very yeah. Okay. She's on my list now too. What a fucking courageous thing to do. She, you know, they're high society, well-to-do people. And, mm-hmm. yeah. Holy shit. And you can't fuck with him. He's not like, oh, Anne Livingston, some fucking weirdo, straight <laughs> trying to give drugs to druggies. <laughs> yeah nailed and i think that's the main thing i started listening to his book because you can just listen to it and um i just haven't had time to finish the it. war on normal people it's yeah. so interesting in the first interview i ever heard of him he goes um he keeps everyone keeps saying that we're going to get um my computer's going to die are we done almost yeah anytime okay good so if it yeah. dies you know what happened yeah. Anyway, so he kept saying that they were going to get machines to drive trucks. And he said 60,000, like there's way more, I don't know, there's millions of truck drivers in the U.S. He goes, mm-hmm. 60,000 of them are armed. And I just went, oh my God. It's like, yeah. It reminds me of William K. or somebody. Yeah. You should always know who's armed. Yes. And those funny things. Revolution is down the barrel of a gun or whatever, all that stuff. I just, yeah. Yeah, that's an awareness you'd want to be thinking mm-hmm. about because they're uh, anyway. The states is it's a mess. I don't know what we're going to do about that. Nothing, I guess. But um, I don't. The other thing about the states and and all of these things that are universal, they had a universal lunch program in the United States, and I went to school there. Mm-hmm. And, um, if you know, they want to pretend that communism is so bad. I kept thinking. I've never seen anything like it. There was these huge vats of food and there was these, you know, you paid three cents for a half pint of milk and you had to 35 cents for your lunch. If you were on welfare, it was free. And my cousins in New York City kept telling me that they knew a whole bunch of kids that only just came and ate the lunch and left. But it was like real food. I mean, just saying. And I remember thinking, and they don't, and they wonder what it's like to live in a communist country. It's kind of like your universal school lunch, I think. You know what I mean? Because it was yeah. everywhere. 
yeah federal program They've, it's all gone now i'm sure anything that could be gone will be gone is it that's a kind of rule of thumb mm -hmm. i think the time is is great because i don't know in my like friend circle i'm seeing more and more people uh post articles about ubi oh good um yeah, yeah, so I think some people get it because they're fucked. I mean, you can, yep. you can add and see that it's impossible. I don't know how anyone's going to move forward with this. Mm -hmm. yeah. dogs and, and Angus lives in the co-op. John bought just before because he was paying so much fucking money for a basement suite that when he got an apartment, I don't think he pays any more than he paid there. And he saved up or you know okay. what I mean? Mm -hmm. But the, if the movie industry goes down, then what? You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, jobs, you can't guarantee jobs, but you can guarantee money. And we That was my other huge fight with welfare. As soon as I got a job or any little jobs or offered a job, yeah. it would be a contract. So I'd go yeah. to the welfare and I'd say, I've been offered a contract. How do I declare my income? And they'd say, no, no all pe every penny's income. I said, no, it isn't. I have to buy a computer. I have to buy clothes. I have yeah. yeah. So I said, you guys need to fix this way more than half the workforce or any job you're going to be offered is mm -hmm. going to be a contract and they refuse to do it they still haven't done it as far as i know every now and then i i got uh, the same bureaucrat so i was working as a volunteer at a level where i was meeting with welfare um bureaucrats because we were running big huge volunteer organizations like the street market or the yeah. prevention site and you have all these people on welfare getting these stipends and so um there was a sense, you know, could they become employable through the, through the program we were doing? Meanwhile, I'm a volunteer on welfare, meeting in rooms with upper-level bureaucrats. It was ironic as hell. Yeah. Poor worker, this oppressed worker with her computer that will freeze if, if I don't answer the questions right, and it automatically reports me for fraud if I don't come into an appointment and she can't tick that off. Yeah. Anyway, it was, it was bizarre. It was a weird experience. And never to this day have ever said anything about that because I said I should declare the same income as I will report for income tax. That's my hint to you guys. Yeah. And I used to say that. I said, I'm not taking the job then. And often I would get offered money to do something and I'd say, send the check to BC Yukon or send the check to them. Yeah. At least I can take gas receipts in there and get my money back. You know what yeah. I mean? If they gave it to me, they'd call it straight off my check. And I, you yeah. Know, if, if you weren't in social housing and maybe even in social, you could lose your, your place of residence. And that's the problem. They got people going on welfare, off welfare. On yeah. Welfare. It's a deterrent for people even finding work. Well, they make you wait. If you reapply, you have to do a three week wait again. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even bring up the other one. If, when you're 60, they force you to, to um, apply for your pension. And so I fought them and I lost. And then I did a judicial review. Fucking hell feels like law school or something. I, I'm yeah. sure, whatever, I finally got all the papers in. And then the government changed and I got a phone call on myself saying, would you please drop this judicial review? I said, well, give me my money back. So well, if you do a judicial review as punishment for not being an obedient welfare recipient with a child, they take $100 a month off your check as punishment. Insane. Yeah, well, like they, before that, they took the entire check and I had to get that weird supplement, which is like a loan. Yeah. And then if okay. you- supposed to pay it back it was just like it's there's nothing like i can't i can't think of a canadian who'd back that up it's just yeah. like fundamental principle of justice that you shouldn't be given the punishment that you know okay you're going to get the death sentence if you're guilty yeah. why don't we just give it to you right off yeah 
for causing any trouble at all. You know what I mean? It's like a, it's a, it's bizarre. And all of them are illegal. I think our entire welfare system is illegal. And yeah. it just is. There's, um, well, as, as we go to fundamental, the, the problem with the courts is you can't get into court with these cases. Like it, that guy in Nova Scotia, we need to study how he did that. I don't quite know how he did it. But I don't know if you can do that. I always think of these multi-pronged things. So you've got people trying to pool their money to create um, a public trust or a, a kind of a shared housing. And then those people can work a little bit together and try to fight for UBI. And you know, you start building one thing onto another because the biggest problem we have is everybody's so kind of fleeting. You know what I mean? We have this mm -hmm. economy that has people traveling a lot more and, and uh, having to make alliances or over tremendous long hours of work. And yeah. You don't have free time to lobby for UBI, and it's the big. And where would they do it? You're seeing almost all public space now is becoming more and more and more restrictive. We had a drug user group meeting in Surrey, and we got kicked out. And it's illegal to kick us out. You know what I mean? That we yeah. don't have those people here. I'm like, say that again, and uh, then you go file a human rights complaint. It's a disability. You can't do that. Yeah. You know, like whatever. They need to be accommodated. They're, they're, Addiction's recognized as a disability. So anyway, it was just, um, it's the access to the justice or the having people like me train other people. I call it middle-class, um, um, middle-class notions of justice. You know what I mean? This kind of, I'm not putting up with that. Mm -hmm. I, I, can, I can feel it like a, and I'm not sure why I have it, except I call it being uppity. And um, it's just that, immediately my mind will go to the contradiction you know what i mean mm -hmm. where like a fundamental principle of justice kind of contradiction five-year-olds are like that though if you, you put five-year-olds in a scenario yeah. they'll, they'll fucking they'll be off they're like get yeah. It. yeah and then i don't know we just wear people down with bullshit or i remember my aunt in in um in my mother's sister said to me that we should trust the rich because they know more than us about how the economy works and i kept thinking no they don't yeah not at all yeah like, there's this stereotype that people are poor because they don't understand money and how money works <laughs> and it's like no you're poor because there's you don't have money exactly yeah all right, so we had a bit of a tech issue just now um so if the sound changes uh, moving forward, that's why, but hopefully it will still be okay. So, uh, Megan, did you want to ask your question? Yeah, I just had one more question for you. So, do you think that if we did have a guaranteed livable income, do you see East Hastings getting totally cleared up? A ton of those people would, would um, it, it, you got to give them time, that's the problem. Once mm -hmm. they spent 10 years on the street, you know, I don't know if you ever read any stuff about addictions and homelessness and homelessness and addictions or drug use, whatever, you know, you're not supposed to use the A word anymore. It's not politically correct. But anyway, um, people, if you read the research on it, they always say, well, we're not sure if being homeless and living under those kind of circumstances causes you to use drugs because it's a survival mechanism or whether people who use drugs end up there because they use all their money for drugs and they keep screwing up because of their addiction. No one's sure. 
and, and it, it, you'll read it in report after report after report that no one really understands. So I always say, if you're going to get people housing, because they're even nervous to give people housing once they've been so kind of messed with, um, that you can't tell if they're crazy or not. You can't tell if they're, you know, what, what's going to happen to them. Mm-hmm. Like, like you can't kind of tell what's wrong with them because homelessness makes things wrong with you. You have this, you've created these sort of dysfunctional ways of coping, which are brilliant. You're not dead. That's a big statement. A lot mm-hmm. of people kill themselves, you know, I'm just saying it's really a bleak place to end up because there's no way out right now. So I think, um, I don't think people can justify that at all. I think um, if if anything, people would have a lot more sense of, um, you could, if you, if you start a program and you're worried that it's going to have a negative effect, the negative effect I would see is that some people could go around and rip everybody off for the UBI every month. And then mm-hmm. they'd still remain on the street, and these other people would be sort of predators, sort of a predator-prey thing. But I think um, if you you could, I mean, you and I could sit down and design something. But the main thing is to get the people organized enough amongst themselves so that um, they can reveal this. I mean, that's why when I run drug user groups, there's so much um, stuff that's gone on within the culture of drug user groups with some predator-prey stuff that um, if, you, if you have a meeting every single week, you know what I mean? You sort of form a group, which is, I don't know, 25 to 30 people can probably manage, like a tribe size. You know, so you know everyone's names, you start to get to know them. You don't like them all, but it's tough. You just end up in the whatever you are. But um, these things can be revealed, and people can get that kind of mutual aid that they need, and it starts to become clear that why doesn't he have his money? What, what happened to him? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I think um, there's a lot uh, community associations and stuff could do a lot to have people watch out for each other, watch out for people that are super vulnerable. But other than that, I don't think, um, I think it's, um, it's an interesting way to view people because when people in well-to-do families end up completely wired and unfunctioning and, you know, in a very, very bad way, um, no one says, oh, uh, we better not give them money. They already have money. And they just, you know, drink themselves mm-hmm. to stuff. I yeah. don't know inexpensive lounges or something. I don't know what to say. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's not a reasonable um, understanding of how people are. But the, the classic story when you when you talk to someone down there who they had a job. This is much less common now because we've got this intergenerational underclass. But the the close, oh, they had a job. They had a car and they got unemployed or they lost. You know, something bad happened. So they drove their car to Vancouver and they tried to get work and then their car got towed or mm. they didn't couldn't make the insurance or that you know what I mean For some reason they lost that vehicle and then you see them sink to the next level then they can't work because they needed their car for traveling to these you know security guard type you know you can get certain mm-hmm. jobs but the job doesn't pay you enough to get a place so you might be living in your car like these the great thing about UBI that I think will happen is I think it'll float the ships in the harbor if you want to pay people less than what they're getting on UBI you're not going to get very many workers. And mm-hmm. the John Clarks and these people that argue against this, a lot of people in big labor argue against UBI because they think the reverse will happen. They think that um, the prices will drop for the shitty jobs because the, um, like Walmart right now in the United States uses uh, food stamp programs to supplement the wages of their workers. Well, they make billions and it should be illegal. I mean, yeah. you think, I don't know if, if you're aware of that kind of problem, but that's what they say will happen, and I don't think that's necessarily true. If you look at the data that was collected in Manitoba, 
I don't know if you say Forger, Evelyn. Those are those are some of the best studies in the world, as far as I know. And there's other ones around too. But um, I think you can do UBI and sabotage it as you give it out, so that you can prove that it doesn't work if you do it badly. And there needs mm. this constant tinkering with it, um, so that um, it's not a set in stone thing. It's something that people think about thoughtfully, and there's a lot of discussion around it. And you know what I mean? It becomes it's kind of like giving the vote to women. That was seen as, you know, the whole world was going to go to hell when they gave the vote to women. Well, oddly, I think the first thing that happened was they made alcohol legal because the women um, got organized to end alcohol prohibition. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the first thing that pops into your mind, but I'm telling yeah. you, they happened at the yeah. same time. Okay. And um, if you look at the history of, um, I can't think of the woman's name, she was some um, big rich woman who she was actually a Republican and she hated alcohol prohibition. Okay. She was destroying, you know, there's so much crime and shootings and she had a place um, on uh, some lake and they had this huge cottage, like some mansion on a lake and she, her kids witnessed um, people being shot out in boats in the harbor who on, under the ruse of rum smuggling and stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was like, holy mm -hmm. shit. And, and people were drinking younger and younger and younger because you couldn't regulate their drinking market because it was all illegal. So wow. children can get access to alcohol and that's what's wrong with our drug system. Too. Yeah, so you so always have to be thinking, there. if you're gonna make something come in as a, a, a project like UBI, I think everyone needs to be, um, you know, there'll be the haters and then but people need to hang on and, and you need a really long term, uh, a long enough term goal with it to um, ensure that it can succeed. Yeah, I think um, this discussion has really highlighted like the pitfalls and challenges of our current uh, system and just how it's kind of like a vicious cycle to keep poor people poor. And some of the, I think maybe the biggest hurdle to getting more of the public support for a UBI are these stereotypes is that like poor people can't be trusted with money and that if people get a UBI, they'll lose interest in work and being like a productive member of society. But it's really like what Andrew Yang says, it's like just a floor, it's not a ceiling. So giving people what they need to survive I mean, it's not going to stop people from working because they're always going to want more money. <laughs> and, and like, it's, it'll just be up to you, like how far you want to take that. And maybe you do want to like focus on more creative projects or find a job that you're actually passionate about, not something you're just working at to make money. So yeah, I think it's important to have these discussions and I'm kind of glad that more of it is being talked about now because of all of like the economic stimulus packages to do with the pandemic. Um, so yeah, I think just we'll just keep having conversations like this. Yeah, lots and lots of them. And I think the younger and younger people are, I see um, my son works in a little store and I think they're very nervous about um, a program like this. They would mm -hmm. kind of, you know, uh, they're pounding in, you know, extremely long hours with extremely tiny margins to make money selling um, skateboarding stuff. Okay. And um, I think that there's, that's what people need to lose is that resentment. Because 
I think the hardest thing is people for, with privilege can't see the privilege they have. It's, it's yeah. completely blind to them. It's like, you know, air to birds or something. So most people, or I don't know if it's, I guess most people have a floor. They have a family. Mm -hmm. And if the very worst thing ever happened to them, they wouldn't sink below a certain level. And that's why you get, um, you know, if you say, well, when Indigenous people are overly represented in poor people, it's because we stole all their land, mm -hmm. you know, like, hello, and destroyed, mm -hmm. like, I don't know if we could exaggerate what you've done to them. And of course, then their offspring are in a position where they can't go to their parents or grandparents for help, which is what we would do. Yeah. You know, someone's got a pot to piss in somewhere up the line. Yeah. or they used to you know what I mean I mm -hmm. think there's a lot of people in free fall right now and we're not doing as well as our parents or that's my generation um but because then my parents owned homes and we're not going to own homes yeah unless we figure out a way to, to for groups of people to to put money together to and figure out you know that's a very biased system as well whether you could do the financing for it mm -hmm. and then the landhold leases and all those kind of things but they have that um if you do um co-housing you have to use the basically the condo system and the condo um, strata system. The strata system isn't that much different than the co-op I live in. We had co-op members move out and um, buy a condo and just came screaming back to the co-op going, the strata councils are so dysfunctional. I'd rather be here fighting at the co-op board. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was surprised. Yeah. But in a way, I wasn't. If you look in the court system, you'll see it's all condo people suing each other. They just plug up the, the um, mm courts with all of these endless lawsuits so um yeah there's there's, there's you know it's, what happens with so much of this stuff going on is you can never figure out where things function and i think things function i think human beings are really kind to each other and highly cooperative or we wouldn't have survived as a species so yeah um that's where um ubi i think can spark some of that what, that's a good place to start rather than um a more intricate and more fair welfare system because i just don't think I, i've never heard of one you know, if you look at the way they do welfare in Europe, you'll see they're a lot more like UBI. In mm -hmm. other words, oh, you're at home with a kid. We don't want your teeth to rot, and we want you to have glasses, and we want you to be employable, and we realize you're going to be employable, so here, it's not. You know what I mean? There's a kind of generosity mm -hmm. to the thing, and it really plays out in people's lives. And for the people who um, aren't able to make it, at least they're not, you know, costing us tons and tons of money in the healthcare system because they have to go live outside or have this unrequited grief of having their children taken from them, which will drive you mad, I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. I don't know, you guys don't have kids yet, but it, it's not, um, it's a kind of unnatural grief, I think. Mm -hmm. where, you know, it's worse than having your kid die in a way. took them, And the message is that you're so horrid and you can't kind of get over it. There's a way you believe that and mm -hmm. it will eat away at you and make you worse than you know, I mean, it's not an optimistic place to be. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, God, I'm feeling really depressed now. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like the emotional and psychological toll that like this whole system has on people mm -hmm. is something that needs to be looked at, and so we can change it for the better. And I feel like we could um, talk about so many of these overlapping factors in regards to like the benefits of a UBI um so we'll definitely have to have you on another episode in the future because I think this has been a really valuable discussion and we want to thank you very much for taking the time um to talk with us today 
Yeah, thank you so much, Anne. Well, it is, I mean, I was coming to meetings for a while, but I had yeah. to, it just got too hectic for yeah. me. Oh, but I've certainly got my um, heart in it. So yeah, definitely. And if, and if it ever be, the, the thing is to have someone with the balls like Andrew Yang to run on it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, those are, you know, the fact that I don't think he, I know he didn't think he was going to win necessarily, but I think uh, it, uh, when it brings it to the fore, it isn't then such a marginalized discussion. It's something yeah. that a, bright, smart, rich guy could bring up because yeah. he, he sees, um, I don't know what motivates him. That's what I'm so curious about with him. Well, he brings up his wife a lot about how the work that she does at home taking care of their autistic son isn't recognized as work, mm -hmm. even though he yeah, sees how hard it is. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. the mother of an autistic son, I was like, oh, right. Yeah. Andrew. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty great. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it keeps evolving. It was great getting to hear like the firsthand experiences that you've had with everything. And I think it will really um, highlight and illustrate uh, what it is like for people, the reality of these situations. So yeah, thank you again. You're welcome.